Tuesday evening, it's just gone 8 o'clock. That means it's time for Current Affairs with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. Jazakamala for joining us. Mm, well, coming up in the show tonight, we're going to have a look at how Chechnyans and Russians have become good friends. We remember just uh, uh, 15 years ago, they were at each other's, at each other's throats. And it eventually resulted in the absolute complete leveling, leveling of Grozny, the capital city of Chechnya. Now, one would think that would make people bitter enemies for decades to come, and maybe even centuries and maybe even forever. But that's not how things have worked out in Chechnya. So in the show today, we'll be looking, uh, we'll be having a look at... Uh, a visit by Scott Ritter, who recently uh, went to uh, visit Chechnya and Russia to see how uh, people feel about the war in Ukraine. And he was surprised to find out that the Chechens and the Russians are getting on better than ever before. <clears throat> and, the Rus and the Chechens are, are big supporters of Russia's uh, fight against Ukraine. Uh, later on in the show, we'll be having a look at a fight back by neoconservatives in the United States. They want to have their Pearl Harbor moment with Iran. They are, are still pushing a, a line that was started uh, under George H. Bush, his presidency. That's the father of George. That's the father of George W. Bush where the neocons in America got together and planned uh, the uh, New American Century, PNAC it was called. And uh, in that they saw the United States taking out uh, its main enemies in Syria, Iraq, Iran, in Libya, and, uh, and Korea. And, uh, well, we saw how that started out. We saw how very little of that actually worked out the way its plan is, has intended. And that the law of unintended consequences uh, really came to bear on the United States as uh, increasingly around the world, hatred for that country is uh, at levels never known before. And then more unintended consequences Yes, the Israelis want to level Gaza. But do they really know what are going to be the unintended consequences of that? Can you ever see Gazans and Israelis uh, coming together as the Chechens and the Russians are? Well, Israel has made much of uh, anti-Semitism in the world. And one of those unintended consequences has been that anti-Semitism as a result of Israel's genocide in Gaza has never been as bad as it is today. After that, if we have time, Caitlin Johnson uh, of uh, informationclearinghouse.info. Very good site. Very good site. It's not an Islamic site at all. Uh, but... I'm sure that most most listeners, if they went to informationclearinghouse.info, you would be able to find many stories uh, that are the kind of stories that you're looking for on a regular basis. 
So let's get back to Scott Ritter and his uh, journey to Moscow and Chechnya recently. He says, in my recent visit, I met people who once fought a bitter war against Moscow, but are now the country's fiercest defenders. Over the course of 24 days, I was able to take in sights and sounds of Moscow and St. Petersburg as these two cities celebrated both the New Year and the Russian Orthodox Christmas. I viewed my winter sojourn in Russia as an extension of the journey I began in May 2023 when I embarked on a mission to try to discover the country's essence in a manner that could be made discernible to my fellow Americans as a sort of antidote to the poison of Russian Russophobia. The combined experiences of observing the Christmas Eve service hosted by Kirill, the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, at the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour in the center of Moscow and watching Pityor Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite performed live in St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg's renowned Mikhailovsky Theatre on Christmas Day, helped ground me in the importance of family and cultures in the lives of the Russian people. Russia's metal, however, can't be measured by its social and cultural accomplishments alone. The true test of a people comes only when the foundation of their society is threatened. The nation is called upon to rally together in its collective defense. Amidst all the holiday celebration and fanfare that I witnessed, there lurked an underlying reality that Russia was very much a nation at war. This war was defined in the mindset of those people I met so much in terms of a Russian-Ukrainian conflict as it was an existential struggle between Russia and the collective West, led by the U.S., in which Ukraine has been used as a proxy. Let there be no doubt, everyone I spoke with about this conflict was weary. They wanted the fighting to end and to be able to get on with their lives. But they were all likewise united in their conviction that the war could only end in a Russian victory that resolved once and for all all the issues that underpin the current conflict, blocking NATO expansion into Ukraine, eliminating a Ukrainian armed force that has become a de facto extension of NATO military power, and the extermination of the odious ideology of Ukrainian ultranationalism as defined by the legacy of Stefan Bandera and the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, all uber-Nazis to the core. To a person, the Russians I spoke to were insistent that the time for compromise had long passed, and that given the investment in blood and treasure that Moscow has made to date, there is no alternative to decisive victory. Yes, the Russian people are tired, but they also understand that the war is a necessary evil which has to be endured all the way to a final comprehensive victory if there is ever to be a chance of a lasting peace. I was able to glimpse the character of the Russian people during the portions of my sojourn to Russia that took me out of its two largest metropolitan centers and to the south of the country into what I have come to call the Russian path of redemption, Chechnya, Crimea, Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Lugansk. Redemption is the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. In the case of Russia's conflict with Kiev, the six named territories all play a role that precisely matches this definition. Of them, Chechnya stands out as having no geographic, historic, ethnic, religious, or political connection with Ukraine. And yet, it is with Chechnya that the Russian path of redemption begins. It was the scene of two bloody wars between Moscow and the separatists that were fought between 1994 and early 2000s, 
with the final counter-guerrilla operations concluding in 2009. That carnage killed tens of thousands of people. The fighting that transpired was bloody and ruthless. Little mercy was shown by the side. By 2002, Chechnya's capital city, Grozny, had been completely leveled. The rancor and bitterness produced by conflict that witnessed so much violence between people with, with, with different religions, cultures and languages made the notion of reconciliation all but impossible to imagine. Add to this was the fact that the Chechnyans possessed a history that lent itself to prejudice and resentment against the Russians, even without the horrors of the two wars. The exile of the Chechen people by Yosef Stalin's Soviet government during the Second World War saw nearly 610,000 Chechen and Ingush uh, forcibly evicted from their homes and relocated to Central Asia, where nearly a quarter of them died due to poor conditions. The survivors were allowed to return to their homeland in 1957, following Nikita Khrushchev's reforms, but the resentment generated by the years of suffering was passed down through the generations that followed. And yet, despite all the negative energy generated by the tragic history of Russia-Chechnyan relations, the two people have found a pathway to peace and prosperity. A, visit to, a visitor to Grozny today is greeted by a city that has been completely rebuilt from the ruins, a place where Russians and Chechnyans live side by side in peace, respectful of their respective linguistic, cultural and religious differences. I call this transformation the Chechen miracle, and yet divine intervention had little to do with it. Instead, the Chechnyan and Russian people were blessed by the leadership of two remarkable men, Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Chief Mufti of the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria, Ahmad Kadyrov, who realized that continued violence would only hurt the people they were tasked with serving, and that the best chance for peace was for the two to sit down in a talk to find a pathway to peace. They succeeded. Today, throughout the Chechen Republic, the visages of Vladimir Putin and Ahmed Kadyrov can be seen on display side by side in recognition of the role both men played in overcoming the history of violence, mistrust and resentment that had defined the relationship. And instead of forging a new path forward governed by a notion of mutual respect and shared pr prosperity, the success of their joint work is manifest in the fact that while the Chechen people today maintain their distinct identity, defined in a large part by the Muslim faith, they very much identify themselves as being part of the Russian Federation, something that was unthinkable back in the 1990s when they fought for independence from Russia. While in Chechnya, I had the opportunity to meet several prominent Chechen figures, including former Deputy Interior Minister Abdi Aldinov, State Duma member Adam Demlikhanov, the chairman of the Chechen Republican Parliament, Mahomet Daudov, and the head of the Chechen Republic, Ramzan Kadyrov. What these four individuals all had in common was that at some point in their lives they had taken up arms against Russia. But while they were also united in the fact that at some point during their resistance against Russia during the Second Chechen War, they realized that the cause of an independent Chechen Republic had been hijacked by foreign jihadis, whose passion for violence had superseded any logical notion of Chechen nationalism and instead created the conditions where continued conflict, con con conflict threatened to consume the Chechen people.
Said Dardov, we have witnessed for ourselves how outside parties sought to infect us with their foreign ideology in order to further their larger struggle against Russia. I was told we ended up realizing that the best way to protect ourselves from being destroyed by these foreign agents was to align ourselves with Russia. So you see, ISIS didn't start in Syria. ISIS actually started long before anyone had thought of calling ISIS ISIS. American Jihad had already started in Chechnya at that time. And so the seeds for ISIS and American Jihad had already been sowed in the 1990s. We discovered that the Russians shared our same desire to live in peace free from outside manipulation. That is why we have made fighting alongside Russia in the special military operation such a high priority. We see in the Banderist forces in Ukraine the same evil that we saw in the foreign jihadis who came to fight us in Chechnya. We worked with Russia to destroy this evil back in the early 2000s, and today we are working with our Russian brothers to destroy that same evil as it has been manifested in Ukraine. Actions speak louder than words. Dadov was responsible for organizing, training, and dispatching formations of Chechen fighters to the Donbass, where they played a central role in the liberation of Lugansk, the siege of Mariupol, and in the heavy fighting that took place in Zaporizhia and Donetsk. Demlikov uh, commanded Chechen forces in Mariupol and Aldinov, was given command of joint Russian-Chechen forces in Lugansk, where the courage and commitment of the Chechen soldiers played a major role in Russia's battlefield victories. In conversations over lunch, Ramzan Kadyrov underscored the narrative described by each of these Chechen leaders, that the Chechens considered themselves to be part of the Russian nation and would willingly sacrifice themselves in defense of Russia. And as if to drive this point home, Ramzan Kadyrov invited me to join him on stage after lunch as he addressed the 25,000-strong Grozny garrison about the conflict in Ukraine. If someone had suggested in 2002 there would come a time in the not-too-distant future where 25,000 Chechen warriors, warriors would be assembled in Grozny not for the purpose of fighting against the Russians, but instead fighting side-by-side side with the Russians against a common enemy. They would have been dismissed as delusional. And yet I bore personal witness to this very phenomenon, watching in amazement as Ramzan Kadyrov exhorted these heavily armed men to fight for the memory of his father, for their faith and for the cause of greater Russia. Well, the neocons in America in the 1990s were already planning to try and use American Jihad to take out Russia. They then uh, drew up another plan that has spawned so many deaths around the world, making Hitler look like an amateur. Hitler killed six million Jews. How many Muslims do you think America and their war on terror and their allies have killed uh, since September 11? 10 million? 20 million? 5 million? Two million? Mm. I would say it's probably between 10 and 15 million. But that hasn't stopped them. It hasn't stopped them. It hasn't given them pause. It hasn't given them cause to sit back and say, what exactly is it that we're trying to do? The fact that they haven't done that, you know, says to me, I mean, it takes me back to um, an issue I remember I rose with my brother once. 
It's like America is on the way out. And the people who are sitting on top of that sinking ship and they are determined to make the most out of the rations and the stores in, in the holes of the ship before it sinks completely. They're trying to get as much out of it for themselves as they can. And that's what I think the leadership of America is. They, they are a nation, they, they are a, a class of, of carpetbaggers. Carpetbaggers were a name given to um, a rash of, uh, of um, Reba merchants, bankers, amateurs with, with no knowledge about anything other than a writ from the bank saying you can go and issue loans to people. And if you can, uh, you can, if you can um, drive them into debt and take away their homesteads, well, then so be it. Good for you. Go ahead and do. This was at the time uh, when whites had gone and occupied the, the empty lands. So they, they became empty lands after they killed all of the native Dakota and Lakota and Sioux and Cheyenne and Apache and so on who were living there before they arrived. After they'd emptied the lands, they invaded the lands, much like Israel would like to do to Gaza today. Same, same kind of like um, plan of action. Uh, so, uh, once these people, uh, once these people had set, once these people had settled down and started uh, building towns, and you get town councils established, and people start making money, and now and prosperity is starting to enter into the wild, wild west. Now people want to expand, and it's at that moment of expansion that the banks sent an army of what later came to be called carpetbagger bankers. Referring to the cheap bags made out of carpeting material that they carried with them, with uh, little receipts in them for, to sign and uh, uh, debts of obligation and so on uh, that they handed out. And within a few uh, within a few months or a few years, these carpet baggers ended up owning everything. So I think that's the kind of people who are in charge of America today. They're not interested in actual fact in growing America or making America last for another thousand years or something. They're actually just out to make a quick buck. And they don't care what the expense is on wider society. That is a thought that maybe Americans would do well to keep, to keep in the back of their minds. So here we go. To the Americans. In 2000, the Project for a New American Century, called PNAC, proposed the U.S.-led global security perimeter in 2000, which influenced military strategies and led to the Iraq invasion after 9-11. Today, neoconservatives continue to advocate for a war with Iran, despite its potential consequences and the need for careful strategy. PNAC issued a report that proposed establishing a new U.S.-led security perimeter around the globe to protect Western interests and perform the constabulary duties, as they called them, associated with what they said would be shaping the security environment in critical regions. The report called Rebuilding America's Defenses, which suggested billions more in the Pentagon budget annually for reimagining military capabilities across the forces, including the nuclear and, and space forces, was based in part on the defense policy guidance crafted by those two old neoconservatives, Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney, 
during the George H.W. Bush administration for maintaining U.S. preeminence, precluding the rise of a great power rival, and shaping the international security order in line with American principles and interests. The report noted that the process, process of transformation that Pinak envisioned, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent uh, some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Pinak, which was founded by Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan, had been actively lobbying to remove uh, Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein from power, and they got its Pearl Harbor a year later. Within two years of the September 11 attacks, the U.S. invaded Iraq, saw Hussein executed, and, well was, and was well on its way to fulfilling at least one top-line goal from the rebuilding America's defenses, that is, to fight, decisively win, to fight and decisively win multiple simultaneous major theater wars. They still think they're capable of doing that now. We know how well uh, Ukraine is doing. We know how well uh, the Iraqi, I mean the Israeli army, supposedly the strongest army in the world, can't even defeat 20,000 Hamas fighters. Um, of course, the winning part never happened. Yet the centrifugal force that was the neoconservative project, which placed several of its founders and signatories at the levers of political and military power inside the George W. Bush administration, they were Cheney, Wolfowitz, Don Rumfeld, uh, Elliot Abrahams, Paulia Dobryansky, and Scooter Libby. They were able to perpetuate a global war on terror and a U.S. military footprint across the greater Middle East and Africa that remains to this day. So now, why revisit it now? Despite their discredited handiwork overseas, vividly reflected in the vulnerability of 3,400 U.S. troops left over from counter-terror operations against ISIS, a militant group gerated in the vacuum from PNAC's vaunted Iraq regime change, neoconservatives and their aspirations are still at the very center of today's foreign policy debates, and they really, really want it the U.S. to go to war with Iran. Said uh, GOP presidential candidate, that's GOP is a grand old party. That's what the Republicans call themselves, the grand old party, the GOP. Yeah, well, GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley said following, an, following a drone attack on three U.S. troops stationed in Jordan on January 29. You have to figure out which Iranian leaders are making the decisions and you have to take them out. This wasn't a once-off. Haley, who shares mega-donors with APAC, that's the American-Israeli um, funding body, has been a neocon-friendly since her days in the Trump administration when she helped kill the Iran nuclear deal. Her campaign has been heavily dosed with hyperbole and simultaneous calls for fighting Putin, the mullahs in Iran, and Xi Jinping in China. She's fond of saying things like, we have to punch these Iranians once and punch them hard. Haley is part of a long-standing echo system of neoconservatives and the attendants in the foreign policy blob who have long identified Iran as a key, if not existential, adversary for both the U.S. and Israel. And this was clear in Rebuilding America's Defenses document, putting it on the current place in the axis of evil, thanks to George W. Bush speechwriter and neocon David Frum in 2002. 
The Biden administration may choose not to retaliate in a big enough way as to set up World War III. All signs this week thankfully point to an effort on both sides, Washington and Tehran, seeking to tamp down the prospects. Even with the U.S. strikes on militia targets in Iraq and Syria on Friday night, they appeared to stop short of directly targeting Iran or senior leaders of the Revolutionary Guards Quds Force within its borders, as the U.S. tries to prevent the conflict from escalating even further. That's according to early Associated Press reporting. With no thanks to this pernicious army of the Iran-obsessed, who implicitly regard the October 7 attacks in Israel as the Pearl Harbor for the final confrontation, if not the regime change they've long been seeking. Top of this list is the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, which was conceived as an American public relations tool for Israel, but made its mark in Washington as a neoconservative counterterrorism think tank and Iraq war cheerleader after 9-11. With the retired military and administration officials like uh, General H.R. McCaster often fronting the mission, FDD, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, has long advocated for the toppling of the regime in Iran, mostly focused on Iran's nuclear program and its threats to Israel. The killing of U.S. troops in Jordan has paved the way for the FDD's apiothis, as it follows, like Mark Dubovitz, Andreas Stricker and Richard Goldberg have enjoyed mainstream news attention, accusing President Biden of long-standing appeasement and demanding he strike Iran hard. Their talking points can be heard in the mouths of nearly every single war party hawk who has found his way to the microphone or camera following October 7. A number of retired U.S. military officers have been using their cash to advocate for war with Iran over the last three months, too. They may not be neocons, but they work closely with groups that are and have internalized the messaging, just like the ramp-up and justification for the Iraq invasion two decades ago. General Frank McKenzie and retired Admiral James Stavridis lead this conga line, showing up on Fox News, Bloomberg and NBC News almost daily now. Road McKenzie, just after the fourth anniversary of the U.S. assassination of Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani, Iranian leaders work with Lenin's dictum that you probe with bayonets. If you, if you find mush, you push. If you find steel, you withdraw. McKenzie wrote that just after um, the fourth anniversary of Soleimani's uh, assassination. And he boasted he was the commander of that operation under the Trump administration. I'd just like to point out that Donald Trump himself phoned up the Iranian foreign minister and asked the Iranian foreign minister to ask Qasem Soleimani to come to Baghdad for a peace meeting with the Saudis. The president of the country himself participated in an international murder. Personally, that's a bit like MBS and Jamal Khashoggi, isn't it? Except uh, I think uh, Qasem Soleimani uh, was a bit more of a man of stronger character than uh, Jamal Khashoggi. But either way, Mackenzie now boasting that he was the one that headed up the mission. Donald Trump, murderer, president of the country degrades his countries to such an extent that the, that the owner of the Oval Office can actually lower himself to common murder, personal murder.
Uh, McKenzie said the Iranians subsequently backed down. And he said, here's the lesson. The, Israeli, the Iranian strategic decision-making is rational. Its leaders understand the threat of violence and its application. And that may be true. I have said uh, quite a few times since October 7, while Iran has made much of this, oh, what this wonderful operation and the defeat of the, you know, of the Zionist regime and the fact that the, um, every day on press TV they say, ah, oh, the, the Israeli, the, the, the Zionist entity is about, to, is about to collapse. This is a complete defeat of the Zionist entity. And these are the brave forces going and fighting. And yeah, the Gazans are winning and it's a victory for Gaza. When can a genocide against a people ever be seen as a victory by that people? I suppose Israel is an example. <laughs> but uh, other than depravity, under normal circumstances, no people, after being genocided, would say, yay, we won. But uh, for Iran, it's a big victory. And it's a big victory for Iran because Iran is not, doesn't have any skin in this game. It's not pain with blood like the Ghazans are doing. So when America confronts Iran directly, Iran does back down. What? You want to kill us? Oh, well, well that's a different thing entirely. I'm sorry, but that's just a kind of feeling that I've got out of this. And I would just like to say I'm also quite critical of Hamas's decision to go ahead with their October 7 um, uh, operation anyway. I felt if these guys don't – I was watching it on, on – um, I was watching it on French, uh, French 24 News, Canal Plus, whatever, uh, on the morning – as it was happening, and I was thinking to myself, these guys better have a contingency plan in place because the Israelis are going to do what they have always wanted to do. We are going to see genocide here in Gaza. They are going to wipe Gaza out. If Hamas does not have a plan B, then this has been a treacherous mistake. I'm sorry if, um, okay, look, you know what? The provocations by Israel uh, in the months preceding October 7 had been beyond the pale, had been unacceptable. And uh, the repeated invasions of Al-Aqsa, and one just a few days before the October 7 um, attack, uh, their, their attacks on the refugee camps, and uh, just the way they attacked, their ongoing terror against the Palestinians on a daily basis, uh, the expansion of their settlements, um, driving uh, Bedouins off their lands, uh, starving villages of water, and then providing uh, those villages with sewage water for drinking. Uh, I'm not saying that there's no justification for it. But when a military leader makes a military decision, he has to think strategically. And he has to think, what is the enemy going to do to retaliate? And what will I do then? And if he doesn't think like that, then you have to question his, his, um, his ability to think. So, um, 
Anyway, that's just my thoughts on that as, uh, at the moment. So anyway, Mackenzie says the Iranians back down, back down because they think rationally. Meanwhile, Stavridis, who never misses an opportunity to push military solutions onto complex combustible geopolitical problems, has written at least two Bloomberg pieces outlining plans for multi-pronged strikes on Iran and its proxies. After the Jordan strikes, his plans now include attacks on Iranian warships, boarding and seizing an Iranian vessel or commercial vessel, an Iranian naval or commercial vessel, targeting Iranian oil and gas platforms in the Arabian Gulf, and strikes against Iranian military command and control sites, the, and against the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps headquarters. If that doesn't work, Stavridi said, the administration is going to have to consider strikes inside Iran. Early in January, Stavridis was echoing a similar call in the message Force Multiplier Vortex that the U.S. sank the Iranian naval fleet in 1988 during Operation Praying Mantis. Iran got the message, he said. Perhaps it's time to send it again. Stavridis and Mackenzie aren't, aren't the only ones. Retired Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg and retired General Jack Keane have also appeared on Fox seeking direct action against Iran as early as November. I wonder if uh, if they stop to consider that. Okay, say we do these limited steps against Iran uh, on its borderlines. What's going to happen to the oil trade? Do they ask themselves that? Well, America, you could say, doesn't have to ask themselves that because it's uh, completely uh, oil uh, independent. It supplies all of its own oil. So uh, the Americans aren't going to ask that question. But what about the Europeans? Can America afford to lose Europe as its ally? Uh, so, yeah, these, uh, these are the unintended consequences that these guys are not really considering. Neoconservative forces injected the foreign policy discourse as early as the 1990s with the idea that opposing Saddam Hussein was part of a grander plan to maintain peace and security in the Middle East. They pushed this idea until it became a reality, with 9-11 giving them, their, giving them their opening to make war on Iraq and push the boundaries of the Middle East vision in the global war on terror. Twenty years later, the Iran peace of the axis of evil remains intact. There's no doubt that Iran has funded and resourced proxies that have fought against the lingering U.S. presence in Iraq and Syria. There is no doubt Iran has funded and resourced Hamas, which bears the sole responsibility for the attacks on Israel. Yet it is important to put the voices for war with Iran into perspective and not allow them to inflate the threat of their own agenda, which far predates the current crisis and for which motivations are less clearly in the U.S. national interest. In other words, America cannot afford another war, and if it intends to retaliate, it should be careful after, it should be after careful deliberation and based on sound strategy, not the saber-rattling of zombie neoconservatives and the minions in the blob. Well, I'm afraid that it seems to be, uh, seems to me that that is all that America has to uh, turn uh, for a reference. There's just a cacophony in the blob. That is America today. Well, Israel. Israel and anti-Semitism. Do they really know what they're letting themselves in for by committing genocide in open public view in Gaza? Do they really know? 
Israel was created on global largesse and sympathy towards the Jewish people. What is global hatred and antipathy towards Israel going to do? Does Israel really think that with 200 atom bombs it's going to hold the world at bay? Because it has lost all legitimacy. It has lost all legitimacy. Does it really know what it's letting itself in for by publishing snuff movies on Telegram, showing their soldiers killing people, and saying, watch this one, you can actually hear their bones crunch. Mm, sick, sick, sick. But unlike the laws of gravity and thermodynamics, the law of unintended consequences has never been formally defined. That said, everyone has a pretty solid notion what it means. It might be loosely stated like this. Any action is certain to have results not foreseen that may be contrary or mitigating of your intent. You think after thousands of years of nations taking dramatic actions and being roughly used, overthrown, dismantled, even destroyed, the countries would have become exceedingly wary of indulging in precipitous actions subject to serious blowback. Well, you'd be wrong. They continue doing it. They never learn. The ugly history of colonialism is one long narrative of complete and devastating reversals after a brief orgy of piracy and rapine that left most of Europe, England, France, Holland, uh, running home, tails gripped between their legs and soundly beaten up in leaving. Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan are later examples. Born on the hot wings of furious rhetoric emitted by high-octane maniacs, they decided to make war on nations many times as populous, rich, and, industri and, and industrially powerful as themselves, blithely ignoring the likelihood they'll be pulverized and incinerated in doing so. Then there was Vietnam. America decided that if it had elections, communism would take over Asia. The Vietnamese hated their native ruling class, the French, that enslaved and starved them, but that didn't occur to our grandees. So America ran a long, brutal, stupid massacre that got it humiliated, whipped and run out. The flops and failures of the ludicrous war on terror in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria were really blatant profiteering exercises for the war machine. Among those victims, American taxpayers were one. Among those victims were ordinary human beings too. In each case, national humiliation was brought by a bonanza for the merchants of death that own our country. They thought it was profitable enough. Can we make enough money? Is it worth it? When the law of unintended consequences so indisputably prevails, how is it nations operate as if it didn't? Consider their empire's cynical idiocy in Ukraine. This bit of dirty pool is also a huge moneymaker for the war machine, with American people the big loser, as money that should have been used for their needs is burgled to enrich that obscenity that sucks their wholly owned government dry. This con was sold as stopping Putin and Russia from again, as in the 1950s, taking over the world and by attacking our 800 military bases in 100-plus countries. One byproduct, aside from hundreds of thousands of dead Ukrainian peasant boys, is the great wave of hatred for America that is billowing all around the world. 
Well, except in debased lackey Europe, which, against all evidence, still thinks it matters. So again, I guess it should be no surprise that Zionist Nazi Israel launched a self-declared genocidal assault on the Palestinians of Gaza. Having stolen the land in 1948 and abused them as detested, despised prisoners for decades, they found on October 7th that their relentless, remorseless cruelty had not crushed out their victims' humanity, and they were stunned. The attack they suffered was not terribly damaging, but it was an insult of the highest order to that theocratic apartheid state. Their response was raw fury. It was to mortally punish the entire people of Gaza. Their reaction is not unusual when a dominant power is shamed and insulted. It is what the empire did after the towers went down. It waged open-ended war on the whole of Islamic civilization. We continue to live in the disastrous after-effects of that decision and will for the, entire, for the foreseeable future. Israel swiftly set out to obliterate Gaza and the Gazans in it. And they have wreaked enormous human destruction in addition to destroying the means of survival for those who have not blown up. It has not, however, been what some neocon idiot said Iraq would be, a cakewalk. It has been a hard slog, bloody fighting, with the Israeli Wehrmacht hard hit by its Hamas fighters, much harder to kill than the mothers and babies that are their favorite targets. So, acting on impulse, claiming self-defense, asserting that condemning its horrific assault is anti-Semitism, meaning just anti-Jews bias, since Palestinians are Semites, Israel unleashed its self-touted, unrestricted, unlimited program of Palestinian annihilation. It has gone on, with all the world watching, for four months, with a civilian death toll at 30,000, the International Court of Justice has ruled against it and required it to cease what may legally technically be termed genocidal violence. I don't believe there's a may in there at all. It most definitely is legally and technically genocidal violence. Israel meant to destroy Hamas and Gaza and it has failed. It may yet get the war with Iran it has sought or a far larger, deadlier one. What is certain though is a consequence which, of all these possibilities, it would least have wanted. Its barbarity has caused an enormous rise in hatred of Jews around the world. Most of humanity knows nothing of Zionism and nothing of the bloody origin and criminal history that fierce, brutal, militant state. It knows only that Israel is a Jewish homeland, and what it does is done by Jews. In endlessly playing the Holocaust card, Zionists have persuaded the world that its racist, apartheid military state represents all Jews worldwide, that it does not, and that colonial Zionism does not have the allegiance or loyalty of world Jewry is a subtlety the world cannot and will not pass. It has watched Israel commit mass murder and blames Jews. In its ferocious, apocalyptic, inhuman insults on Palestinians, the Zionist monsters have created the greatest most widespread wave of anti-Jewish hatred in history. The non-existent anti-Semitism that Israel hid behind will now be made real in a tsunami of outraged prejudice that will devastate that ugly, racist state. Oh. Well, in uh, other news, further afield, 
Tucker Carlson, um, a talk show host in America, has been spotted in Moscow generating speculation that he's there to interview President Vladimir Putin. And the liberal commentariat are losing their minds about it in the mainstream media in America. There's no valid basis for Westerners to object to Putin being interviewed by a Western pundit. There's no moral basis because Israeli officials have had unfettered access to a wildly sympathetic Western press throughout four months of administrating an act of genocide. There's no basis on the ground that it hurts U.S. information interests because that would be admitting that U.S. information interests depend on hiding information from the public about matters as basic as what a foreign leader thinks about his own actions and essentially acknowledging that the Western media are supposed to function as propaganda services for U.S. military and intelligence agencies. Every possible objection is also confession about what the U.S. empire and its media actually are. So all of this time, Americans are begging for health care. Now, you've got Obamacare. Old um, genocide Joe, uh, Joe Biden, hasn't been able to reintroduce Obamacare. But Americans definitely need it. And, of course, if there's one thing that the Republicans are going to ensure, uh, you know, after uh, quizzling... Uh, immoral support of Israel, one thing the Americans will never do is give Obamacare back to Americans, not after Trump uh, got rid of most of it. So Americans are asking, we need health care. What does the U.S. government do? They say, sorry, uh, did you say bomb Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Yemen in facilitation of an act of genocide? Then the Americans say, no, 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 we want health care. The American government says, all right, you drive a hard bargain. But let's go bomb Syria, Iraq, and Yemen in facilitation of an act of genocide anyway while we work on your health care. Of course, health care is never never going to arrive. And of course, um, Genocide Joe, he says the United States is not seeking conflict in the Middle East. You see, Genocide Joe, he thinks he's very clever. Because he knows, he knows the first rule of Sun Tzu's art of war is there is no war. No, me. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to kill you. No, 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 no. No, we're not going to war with you. I know that our tanks have drawn up to your border, uh, but we they're just part of maneuvers. Um, I know that we've ordered a whole lot of missiles with the range specifically calibrated to your capital city. But that's a mere coincidence. You see, that's how the art of war is supposed to be managed. The second rule, I think, is you try and get your enemy to do what you want him to do without actually having to go to war with him. Something Israel, that second rule is something that Israel should ponder on. So, yeah, Joe Biden isn't technically lying when he says the U.S. does not see conflict in the Middle East. He's not lying because the U.S. isn't seeking conflict in the Middle East. The U.S. is seeking domination in the Middle East. Most certainly the U.S. would prefer to receive that domination willingly from submissive subjects. And only when Middle Easterners refuse to submit is there conflict in the Middle East. 
Yes, the U.S. has never done anything good for the Middle East. All it's brought to the region is a bunch of murderous military operations and the non-stop murderous military operation that is the State of Israel. Setting up a bunch of military bases in countries on the other side of the planet and then going to war with anyone who tries to kick them out is pretty much the exact opposite of how a sane and ethical military should be used. U.S. foreign policy is essentially one long war against disobedience. Bombing, regime change, starving, and destabilizing any population anywhere on earth who dares to insist on its own self-sovereignty instead of letting itself be absorbed into the folds of the global empire. They call different parts of it the Israel-Hamas war, the Iraq war, the war on terror, but really it's all the same war, the war on disobedience. One long operation to brutalize a global, uh, global population into obedience and submission, year after year, decade after decade. And when it comes to Israel, the main difference between liberals and conservatives in America is that conservatives support Israel because they like it when Muslims get murdered, while liberals uh, support Israel because mumble, mumble, something about anti-Semitism, mumble, mumble, Israel has a right to defend itself, mumble, but we have serious concerns about the humanitarian. Hey, look over there, it's Trump. That's how liberals in America think. We can't let Trump win. And that's it. We can't let Biden win. I was speaking about it the other night. They see these things in terms of ego. They don't see these things in terms of compassion and humanity. Joe Biden, is, is, it's, it's his game. The end of his life is coming up and, 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 and Putin is still there in office. Putin is going to win. And Joe, by insisting on running as... Um, as um, Democrat candidates in the elections this year, that's sure one far way of getting Donald Trump re-elected. Because the vast majority of Democratic supporters, uh, Democratic Party supporters in the United States are opposed to the war in Gaza. But Joe has been given him, he has been given his money. Genocide Joe, he needs to do his work now. You've been given the money, now you must do the work, Joe. And so Joe's working. He's working for his Zionist masters. And he's probably going to work himself into his grave. Imagine if Joe Biden dies right in the middle of the elections. As Americans are going to the polls, Joe Biden dies. Wouldn't it be funny if there, there was then an upsurge in sympathy and um, Joe Biden won the election? Donald Trump would be beaten by a dead man. Well, that's one little fantasy that I have. Another one is um, seeing both Joe Biden and Donald Trump in jail when the elections are held. And then the American president having as his first, as his first task in office is to sign a, um, um, a pardon for himself. Uh, no, I would just love to see that. I would love to see the American president in jail swearing. And I do solemnly swear. I would love to see that. But, well, anyway, who knows? Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Uh, yeah, that's true, though, isn't it? 
I mean, what we've seen in Gaza is most definitely an aesthetic, hmm? that look of those buildings, those blown-up buildings. It's an aesthetic that is drawn from Afghanistan. Or maybe we should start with Srebrenica. Srebrenica in former Yugoslavia. From Srebrenica through to Afghanistan, through to Iraq, through to Syria, Libya, and now Gaza. I used to include Grozny in that. I used to say that uh, the Red, White and Blue Alliance. But it seems like they're, they're, um, who knows, maybe Muslims are going to be siding up with the um, the uh, the Orthodox Christians rather than the um, the Catholic Christians in this Mufti Mehdi war that is coming. But anyway, okay, yeah. You see, you're able to recognize American democracy by the bombed-out buildings. You say American democracy has been here. Look at all these bombed-out cities, empty, now just ghost towns. Why did that happen? And people turned a blind eye. No one noticed. Now Ghazi is happening. And the whole world is up in arms. Why? Why is Gaza so different? It's because Gaza is different. Those Palestinians are different people. And Allah Ta'ala has promised in the Quran that there will be a people near Al-Aqsa who will fight all the way to the end and they will never be defeated. So how or why is Gaza different? Many people are saying it's because people are seeing it. If there had been as many journalists in um, Iraq, the Iraq war would have stopped halfway through. Same goes for Afghanistan. Same goes for any of those wars. thing about Gaza is there's just so much world attention being focused on it for so long. Just from the mainstream media alone, there are a great concentration of mainstream media reporters there. It is always top of news on the international agenda. And, of course, Gaza itself has been training journalists, churning them out. And Israel has been targeting them. But my feeling is the Gazans, the Gazan journalists' stories are going to live forever. Whereas uh, the Israeli genocide, it is, it is, this is the final nail in Israel's coffin. It's just going to take a long time to hammer that nail in. Yeah, if the Gaza genocide had happened pre-internet, it wouldn't have been a fringe issue. It would have been a fringe issue hardly anyone knew about. The Western press would have been able to get away with exponentially more cover-ups of Israeli crimes. Western politicians would have been able to get away with more lies about what's really happening. Israeli officials would have been far less careful about their statements of genocidal intent in their own media, and the IDF would have been vastly more blatant and obvious about its extermination campaign. It's only because normal people are getting eyes into what's really happening that this issue is subject to worldwide outcry and condemnation, 
that has placed the empire on the black foot, on the back foot. The political media class never does the right thing because it wants to. It does the right thing when it is forced to by normal human beings with healthy consciences. The fate of humanity rests on the ability of ordinary people to freely circulate truth. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, really. You know, I used to have Jewish friends back in the old days before I became a Muslim. Many of them have remained friends on Facebook, of course. Um, uh, and uh, I have a precautionary rule about my Jewish friends, and that is that at least half of them are very likely enemies and 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 um, direct enemies. Self, no, well, they don't self-declare it. They never, never self-declare. And I know, I know, among uh, among my former friends, there are some who actually do. The actions of Israel really do hurt them. They 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 can't believe it. They they, you do get good Jews in the world. Yes, you do. I'd be willing to call them Jewish. But anyone who supports the Zionist state, anyone who supports Nazism, cannot logically be called Jewish. You can't cannot think of a person like that as a Jew. You're a Hitler. But the Hitler exterminated the Jews. How can you be a Hitler and a Jew? No. It doesn't make sense. As I said on my show this afternoon, anyone who thinks that Israel is a Jewish state has got a very low opinion about Jews. And it's on that note that we'll wrap up the show for tonight. Uh, Jazakamallah for joining us. Inshallah, we'll be back tomorrow night. Uh, with Business Matters. Yes, it's our business show tomorrow night. So if you're looking for um, uh, some market news and analysis from me myself, uh, I will be on between 8 and 9. And, of course, I will also be busy with um, worldviews from uh, 12 to 1 tomorrow afternoon. Jazakamallah for joining us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.